Section twenty one of Thrift. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Michelle Eaton. Thrift by Samuel Smiles. Living Beyond the Means. Part two. When Sir Charles Napier left India, he issued an order to the army in which he reproved the officers for contracting debts without the prospect of paying them the commander-in-chief found that he was subject to constant complaints against officers for non-payment of debts and in some cases he found that the ruin of deserving an industrious tradesman had been consequent on that cause this growing vice he severely reprimanded as being derogatory to the character of the gentleman as a degrading thing, as entitling those who practised it to group with the infamous, with those who are cheats and whose society is contamination. He strongly urged them to stick to their duties, to reprobate extravagance and expense of all sorts, and to practise rigid economy. For, to drink unpaid-for champagne and unpaid-for beer, and to ride unpaid-for horses, is to be a cheat and not a gentleman. The extravagance of these young gentlemen in India is in too many respects but a counterpart of the extravagance of our young gentlemen at home. The revelations of extravagances at Oxford and Cambridge point to the school in which they have learnt their manners. Many worthy parents have been ruined by the sons whom they had sent thither to be made scholars of but who have learnt only to be gentlemen, in the popular acceptation of the word. To be a gentleman nowadays is to be a gambler, a horse-racer, a card-player, a dancer, a hunter, a rui, or all combined. The gentleman lives fast, spends fast, drinks fast, dies fast. The old style of gentleman has degenerated into a gent and a fast man gentleman has become disreputable and when it is now employed it oftener signifies an idle spendthrift than an accomplished virtuous laborious man young men are growing quite shameless about being in debt and the immorality extends throughout society tastes are becoming more extravagant and luxurious without the corresponding increase of means to enable them to be gratified but they are gratified nevertheless, and debts are incurred which afterwards weigh like a millstone round the neck. Extravagant habits once formed and fostered are very difficult to give up. The existing recklessness of running into debt without the prospect, often without even the intention of paying the debt, saps the public morals and spreads misery through the middle and upper classes of society. The tone of morality has sunk, and it will be long before it is fairly recovered again. In the meantime, those who can ought to set their faces against all expenditure where there are not sufficient means to justify it. The safest plan is to run up no bills and never to get into debt. And the next is, if one does get into debt, to get out of it again as quickly as possible. A man in debt is not his own master. He is at the mercy of the tradesman he employs. 
He is the butt of lawyers, the byword of creditors, the scandal of neighbours. He is a slave in his own house. His moral character becomes degraded and defiled. And even his own household and family regard him with pity akin to contempt. Montaigne says, I always feel a pleasure in paying my debts because I discharge my shoulders of a wearisome load and of an image of slavery. Johnson might well call economy the mother of liberty. No man can be free who is in debt. The inevitable effect of debt is not only to injure personal independence, but in the long run to inflict moral degradation. The debtor is exposed to constant humiliations. Men of honourable principles must be disgusted by borrowing money from persons to whom they cannot pay it back. Disgusted with drinking wine, wearing clothes, and keeping up appearances with other people's money. The Earl of Dorset, like many other young nobles, became involved in debt and borrowed money upon his property. He was cured of his prodigality by the impertinence of a city alderman, who haunted his antechamber for the purpose of dunning him for his debt. From that day the Earl determined to economise, to keep entirely out of everybody's debt, and he kept his word. Let every man have the fortitude to look his affairs in the face, to keep an account of his items of income and debts, no matter how long or black the list may be. He must know how he stands from day to day, to be able to look the world fairly in the face. Let him also inform his wife, if he has one, how he stands with the world. If his wife be a prudent woman, she will help him to economise his expenditure and enable him to live honourably and honestly. No good wife will ever consent to wear clothes and give dinners that belong not to her, but to her shopkeeper. The knowledge of arithmetic is absolutely necessary to those who would live within their means. Women are especially ignorant of arithmetic. They are scarcely taught the simplest elements, for female teachers think the information useless. They prefer to teach languages, music, deportment and use of the globes. All these may be important, but the first four rules of arithmetic are better than all. How can they compare their expenditure with their receipts without the knowledge of addition and subtraction? How can they know precisely what to spend in rent or clothing or food or for service unless they know the value of figures? How can they check the accounts of their tradesmen or their servants? This want of knowledge of arithmetic is the cause, not only of great waste, but of great misery. Many a family of good position have fallen into destitution merely because of their ignorance of this branch of knowledge. Young people often rush into marriage without reflection. A young man meets a pretty face in a ballroom, likes it, dances with it, flirts with it, and goes home to dream about it. At length he falls in love with it, courts it, marries it, and then he takes the pretty face home and begins to know something more about it. All has as yet been very jolly. The face has hitherto been charming, graceful, artless and beautiful. It has now to enter upon another sphere of life. It has to be seen much closer. 
It has to be seen daily, and it has to begin housekeeping. Most newly married people require some time to settle quietly down together. Even those whose married life has been the happiest arrive at peace and repose through a period of little struggles and bewilderments. The husband does not all at once find his place, nor the wife hers. One of the very happiest women we know has told us that the first year of her married life was the most uncomfortable of all. She had so much to learn, was so fearful of doing wrong, and had not yet found her proper position. But feeling their way, kind and loving natures will have no difficulty in at last settling down comfortably and peacefully together. It was not so with the supposed young man and his pretty face. Both entered upon their new life without thinking, or perhaps with exaggerated expectations of its unalloyed happiness. They could not make allowances for lovers subsiding into husband and wife, nor were they prepared for the little ruffles and frettings of individual temper, and both felt disappointed. There was a relaxation of the little attentions which are so novel and charming to lovers. Then the pretty face, when neglected, found relief in tears. There is nothing of which men tire sooner, especially when the tears are about trifles. Tears do not in such cases cause sympathy, but breed repulsion. They occasion sourness, both on the one side and the other. Tears are dangerous weapons to play with. Were women to try kindness and cheerfulness instead, how infinitely happier would they be? Many are the lives that are made miserable by an indulgence in fretting and carking, until the character is indelibly stamped, and the rational enjoyment of life becomes next to a moral impossibility. Mental qualities are certainly admirable gifts in domestic life, but though they may dazzle and delight, they will not excite love and affection to anything like the same extent as a warm and happy heart. They do not wear half so well, and do not please half so much, and yet how little pains are taken to cultivate the beautiful quality of good temper and happy disposition, and how often is life, which otherwise might have been blessed, embittered and soured by the encouragement of peevish and fretful habits, so totally destructive of everything, like social and domestic comfort. How often have we seen both men and women set themselves round about as if with bristles, so that no one dared to approach them without the fear of being pricked. For want of a little occasional command over one's temper, an amount of misery is occasioned in society, which is positively frightful. Thus is enjoyment turned into bitterness, and life becomes like a journey barefooted, amongst prickles and thorns and briars. In the instance we have cited, the pretty face soon became forgotten, but as the young man had merely bargained for the face, as it was that to which he had paid his attentions, that which he had vowed to love, honour and protect, when it ceased to be pretty, he began to find out that he had made a mistake, and if the home be not made attractive, if the newly married man finds that it is only an indifferent boarding-house, he will gradually absent himself from it. He will stay out in the evenings and console himself with cigars, cards, politics, the theatre, 
the drinking club, and the poor pretty face will then become more and more disconsolate, hopeless and miserable. Perhaps children grow up, but neither husband nor wife know much about training them, or keeping them healthy. They are regarded as toys when babies, dolls when boys and girls, drudges when young men and women. There is scarcely a quiet, happy, hearty hour spent during the life of such a luckless couple. Where there is no comfort at home, there is only a succession of petty miseries to endure. Where there is no cheerfulness, no disposition to accommodate, to oblige, to sympathise with one another, affection gradually subsides on both sides. It is said that when poverty comes in at the door, love flies out at the window. But it is not from poor men's houses only that love flies. It flies quite as often from the homes of the rich, where there is a want of loving and cheerful hearts. This little home might have been snug enough, with no appearance of want about it. Rooms well furnished, cleanliness pervading it, the table well supplied, the fire burning bright and yet without cheerfulness. There wanted the happy faces, radiant with contentment and good humour. Physical comfort, after all, forms but a small part of the blessings of a happy home. As in all other concerns of life, it is the moral state which determines the weal or woe of the human condition. Most young men think very little of what has to follow courtship and marriage. They think little of the seriousness of the step. They forget that when the pledge has once been given, there is no turning back. The knot cannot be untied. If a thoughtless mistake has been made, the inevitable results will nevertheless follow. The maxim is current, that marriage is a lottery. It may be so if we abjure the teachings of prudence, if we refuse to examine, inquire and think, if we are content to choose a husband or a wife, with less reflection than we bestow upon the hiring of a servant, whom we can discharge any day if we merely regard attractions of face, of form or of purse, and give way to temporary impulse or to greedy avarice, then in such cases marriage does resemble a lottery in which you may draw a prize, though there are a hundred chances to one that you will only draw a blank. But we deny that marriage has any necessary resemblance to a lottery. When girls are taught wisely how to love, and what qualities to esteem in a companion for life, instead of being left to gather their stock of information on the subject from the fictitious and generally false personations given to them in novels, and when young men accustom themselves to think of the virtues, graces and solid acquirements requisite in a wife, with whom they are to spend their days, and on whose temper and good sense the whole happiness of their home is to depend, then it will be found that there is very little of the lottery in marriage, and that like any concern of business or of life, the man or woman who judges and acts wisely, with proper foresight and discrimination, will reap the almost certain consequences in a happy and prosperous future. True, mistakes may be made, and will be made, as in all things human, but nothing like the grievous mistake of those who stake their happiness in the venture of a lottery.
another great point is to be able to say no on proper occasions when enticements allure or temptations assail say no at once resolutely and determinedly no i can't afford it many have not the moral courage to adopt this course they consider only their selfish gratification they are unable to practice self-denial they yield give way and enjoy themselves the end is often defalcation fraud and ruin what is the verdict of society in such cases the man has been living beyond his means of those who may have been entertained by him not one of them will thank him not one of them will pity him not one of them will help him everyone has heard of the man who couldn't say no he was everybody's friend but his own his worst enemy was himself he ran rapidly through his means and then called upon his friends for bonds bails and promises to pay after spending his last guinea he died in the odour of harmless stupidity and folly his course in life seemed to be directed by the maxim of doing for everybody what everybody asked him to do whether it was that his heart beat responsive to every other heart or that he did not like to give offence could never be ascertained but certain it is that he was rarely asked to sign a requisition to promise a vote to lend money or to endorse a bill that he did not comply he couldn't say no and there were many who knew him well who said he had not the moral courage to do so his father left him a snug little fortune and he was at once beset by persons wanting a share of it now was the time to say no if he could but he couldn't his habit of yielding had been formed he did not like to be bored could not bear to refuse could not stand importunity and almost invariably yielded to the demands made upon his purse while his money lasted he had no end of friends he was a universal referee everybody's bondsman just sign me this little bit of paper was a request often made to him by particular friends what is it he would mildly ask for with all his simplicity he prided himself upon his caution yet he never refused three months after a bill for a rather heavy amount would fall due and who should be called upon to make it good but everybody's friend the man who couldn't say no at last a molster for whom he was bondsman a person with whom he had only a nodding acquaintance suddenly came to a stand in his business ruined by heavy speculations in funds and shares when the man who couldn't say no was called upon to make good the heavy duties due to the crown it was a heavy stroke and made him a poor man but he never grew wise he was a post against which every needy fellow came and rubbed himself a tap from which every thirsty soul could drink a flitch at which every hungry dog had a pull an ass on which every needy rogue must have his ride a mill that ground everybody's corn but his own in short a good-hearted fellow who couldn't for the life of him say no it is of great importance to a man's peace and well-being that he should be able to say no at the right time many are ruined because they cannot or will not say it vice often gains a footing within us 
because we will not summon up the courage to say no. We offer ourselves too often as willing sacrifices to the fashion of the world, because we have not the honesty to pronounce a little word. The duellist dares not say no, for he would be cut. The beauty hesitates to say it when a rich blockhead offers her his hand, because she has set her ambition on an establishment. The courtier will not say it, for he must smile and promise to all. When pleasure tempts with its seductions, have the courage to say no at once. The little monitor within will approve the decision and virtue will become stronger by the act. When dissipation invites and offers its secret pleasures, boldly say no. If you do not, if you acquiesce and succumb, virtue will have gone from you and your self-reliance will have received a fatal shock. The first time may require an effort, but strength will grow with use. It is the only way of meeting temptations to idleness, to self-indulgence, to folly, to bad custom, to meet it at once with an indignant no. There is indeed great virtue in a no when pronounced at the right time. A man may live beyond his means until he has nothing left. He may die in debt, and yet society does not quit its hold of him until he is laid in his grave. He must be buried as society is buried. He must have a fashionable funeral. He must, to the last, bear witness to the power of Mrs. Grundy. It is to please her that the funeral cloaks, hat-bands, scarves, mourning coaches, gilded hearses, and processions of mutes are hired. And yet how worthless and extravagant is the mummery of the undertaker's grief, and the feigned woe of the mutes, sollies, and plume-bearers, who are paid for their day's parade. It is not so much among the wealthy upper classes that the mischiefs of this useless and expensive mummery are felt, as amongst the middle and working classes. An expensive funeral is held to be respectable. Middle-class people, who are struggling for front places in society, make an effort to rise into the region of mutes and nodding plumes, and like their betters, they are victimised by the undertakers. These fix the fashion for the rest. We must do as others do, and most people submit to pay the tax. They array themselves, friends and servants, in mourning, and a respectable funeral is thus purchased. The expenditure falls heavy upon a family at a time when they are the least able to bear it. The breadwinner has been taken away, and everything is left to the undertaker. How is a wretched widow in the midst of her agony, or how are orphan children, deprived of the protecting hand of a parent, to higgle with a tradesman about the cheapening of mourning suits, black gloves, weepers, and other miserable trappings of woe? It is at such a moment, when in thousands of cases, every pound and every shilling is of consequence to the survivors, and the little ready money they can scrape together is lavished without question upon a vulgar and extravagant piece of pageantry. Would not the means which have been thus foolishly expended in paying an empty honour to the dead be much better applied in being used for the comfort and maintenance of the living? The same evil propagates itself downwards in society. The working class suffer equally with the middle classes in proportion to their means.
the average cost of a tradesman's funeral in england is about fifty pounds of a mechanic or labourer it ranges from five pounds to ten pounds in scotland funeral expenses are considerably lower the desire to secure respectable internment for departed relatives is a strong and widely diffused feeling among the labouring population and it does them honour they will subscribe for this purpose when they will for no other the largest of the working men's clubs are burial clubs ten pounds are usually allowed for the funeral of a husband and five pounds for the funeral of a wife as much as fifteen twenty thirty and even forty pounds are occasionally expended on a mechanic's funeral in cases where the deceased has been a member of several clubs on which occasions the undertakers meet and settle between them their several shares in the performance of the funeral it is not unusual to insure a child's life in four or five of these burial clubs and we have heard of a case where one man had insured payments in no fewer than nineteen different burial clubs in manchester when the working man in whose family a death has occurred does not happen to be a member of a burial club he is still governed by their example and has to tax himself seriously to comply with the usages of society and give to his wife or child a respectable funeral where it is the father of the family himself who has died the case is still harder perhaps all the savings of his life are spent in providing mourning for his wife and children at his death such an expense at such a time is ruinous and altogether unjustifiable does putting on garments of a certain colour constitute true mourning is it not the heart and the affections that mourn rather than the outside raiment bingham in speaking of the primitive christians says that they did not condemn the notion of going into a mourning habit for the dead nor yet much approve of it but left it to all men's liberty as an indifferent thing rather commending those that either omitted it wholly or in short laid it aside again as acting more according to the bravery and philosophy of a christian john wesley directed in his will that six poor men should have twenty shillings each for carrying his body to the grave for said he i particularly desire that there may be no hearse no coach no escutcheon no pomp except the tears of those that have loved me and are following me to abraham's bosom i solemnly adjure my executors in the name of god punctually to observe this it will be very difficult to alter the mourning customs of our time we may anxiously desire to do so but the usual question will occur what will people say what will the world say we involuntarily shrink back and play the coward like our neighbours still common sense repeatedly expressed will have its influence and in course of time it cannot fail to modify the fashions of society the last act of queen adelaide by which she dispensed with the hired mummery of undertaker's grief and the equally characteristic request of sir robert peel on his deathbed that no ceremony nor pomp should attend his last obsequies cannot fail to have their due effect upon the fashionable world and through them the middle classes 
who are so disposed to imitate them in all things, will in course of time benefit by their example. There is also, we believe, a growing disposition on the part of the people at large to avoid the unmeaning displays we refer to, and it only needs the repeated and decided expression of public opinion to secure a large measure of beneficial reform in this direction. Societies have already been established in the United States, the members of which undertake to disuse mourning themselves, and to discountenance the use of it by others. It is only perhaps by association, and the power of numbers, that this reform is to be accomplished, for individuals here and there could scarcely be expected to make way against the deeply rooted prejudices of the community at large. End of section 21